Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, hello, hello. I hope you're all doing very, very well. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Are we going through the same, not the same nightmare, which we'll talk about, that we've gone through over the last well over a year now, but should we be worried about the way things are heading with COVID-19? Now, if I'm just looking right now at the official government dashboard, in the last week, cases have gone up by 46.2%. The Delta variant, which we originally called the Indian variant, but now the new system, rightly, is alphabet. I mean, it's optimistic they think there's only going to be 26 of these variants. But nonetheless, the Delta variant has now become the dominant variant in Britain. Now, this only was first identified two months ago in this country. The government failed to put it on the red list um, because they wanted to negotiate a trade deal with India. And Boris Johnson, of course, was visiting India uh, or planning, he didn't in the end, uh, in order to negotiate that trade deal. Uh, continuing the general theme of this government, a completely self-destructive, on-its-own-terms approach, which is uh, that uh, a false dichotomy of uh, it's either the public health crisis or the economy, that if you, uh, you know, if we lock down, it will damage the economy, and we can't be having that, uh, which is why we delayed lockdown, not once, not twice, but three times, all three times, and in the end, of course, what actually happens is you were you end up the worst of all worlds because the threat to the economy is the public health crisis, the virus. Uh, if you crush the virus, as other countries have done much more effectively, then you have less economic consequences. We've got one of the worst economic consequences, one of the worst death tolls on earth. And the same went with the Delta vi- variant, uh, that because they thought a trade deal was in the offing uh, and they didn't want to damage the prospects of that trade deal, they didn't put India on the red list. And as a consequence, that virus, that strain was allowed to seed across the country and it's now the dominant strain. Now, what we know about it so far is, it, and we'll be talking to an expert, of, of course, as you probably noticed, I'm not a medical expert, which is why we have medical experts on the show to actually be informed and educated about what they tell us. But we know it is so far more transmissible and there are worrying questions about how much more severe the illness it uh, produces. On the more positive note, over 76% of the adult population have now had two doses. Uh, sorry, one dose, one dose, get that right. Over 76% have had one dose of a virus, myself included, two weeks ago. And over half the adult population have had, uh, have had uh, two doses. And that, of course, is Overwhelmingly, that includes older people and people who are vulnerable, people with underlying health conditions that make them more susceptible to severe illness uh, with COVID-19. So I suppose the question is, this race against time, has will the, the surge in cases, that was always going to happen to a degree if you start opening up society and the economy, but then you throw in a more transmissible strain into the mix, not great, but will that crash against a wall of vaccinated bodies. And eat, I mean, there are caveats there. The, vi- the, the, uh, the vaccines are very effective, but there are still a chunk of people who won't be entirely protected even after they've been vaccinated. So there's still a pool in the country. But nonetheless, will that mean that we will be spared the surge in hospitalizations that we went through last April, but of course in January, even worse. And what we've seen in India, which is what happens when a country allows a public health crisis to spiral out of control. And we saw the terror, horrible scenes in India uh, as hospitals were overwhelmed. Uh, And so the question is, are we going to have Freedom Day, uh, so-called, much vaunted on the 21st of June, uh, which is only 15 days away, in which uh, supposedly restrictions are almost entirely dropped. 
Or is that not only going to be pushed back, but are we are we facing the prospect of even more restrictions being imposed, a reversal of where we are today? So I will be joined very, just imminently with Professor Dean Pillay from Independent Sage, who a, a team of scientists and experts who've been vindicated at every stage of this crisis, if they'd been listened to, we wouldn't have around 150,000 people dead, around one in every 443 citizens of this country dead. Uh, we wouldn't have had the overwhelming of our hospitals. We wouldn't have had uh, the prolonged restrictions on our freedoms that we suffered because we didn't get a handle on the virus early enough. And we wouldn't have had the grievous economic consequences to this degree either. We still would have suffered, but we didn't need to suffer this much. And that's why it's important to have people who were vindicated, who were right all along, rather than those who fed uh, a uh, advice or, or propagated ideas which were completely discredited, and yet they're still afforded a public platform to continue those untruths and and to claim things which aren't even factually true, such as the media ecosystem that we have in this country. Um, I'm also later joined by James Meadway, who's a brilliant economist, uh, a writer, uh, who'll be talking about the economic and political consequences of COVID-19. That's enough for me. Uh, let us bring in an, a, an actual expert, Professor Dean Pillay. Hello. How are you doing, Dean? Great to see you. Hi. Nice to nice to be with you, Owen. And I was just talking to Dean, and coincidentally, and I completely didn't put two and two together. I went uh, on holiday with his son a couple of weeks ago to Shropshire, which is a lovely little time. He's a great guy, uh, also a medic, so he's a kind of superhero medic family um so just to just to kick off uh thanks again obviously we really appreciate it especially at short notice when i look as i say you look at the government the the official dashboard and in normal times pre-vaccine if you saw that surge in cases you'd be going oh this is very bad but we do actually have the only thing that's gone right and it's not the government uh, who should be credited it's the nhs vaccine program, unlike test and trace handed to the private sector, this was run by the public sector. No, let's notice the difference. It has been such a success. We should be very proud of it as a country. So I suppose my question is, is the surge in cases, uh, should we really be that worried? Because maybe it won't translate into hospitalizations and and deaths of the sort we've seen on a, of, of a horrific magnitude. Um, yes, yeah, good question. W- w- I guess we don't know precisely. Um, clearly, we've we've learned to our cost um, uh, that uh, delay in a response to these early indications of an upsurge of infections um, it is really damaging um, because when the virus replicates and transmits, it does so in an exponential way. In other words, if I'm infected and I go into a pub you know, I, I, I will infect two other people, let's say. Those individuals will each infect two other people on average. And so the growth of the virus is expen- exponential. And by the time we, we in our data, we, we're st- seeing an increase, then, you know, um, things are well on their way. And that's that's why we've got to be really careful and cautious about, about, about this and respond. Um, but it is fair to say, as you've identified, Owen, that we're in a different situation now at a population level. The the last two surges happened um, where there was no vaccine rollout um, and therefore there were lots of people who were susceptible to infection. What immunisation has done, it is not only to um, take out of, you know, out of the susceptible population a large group of individuals, um, but also... Uh, attenuate the infection um, if, if, for instance, people have just had one dose or even if they had two doses because vaccine is not 100% effective, but nevertheless, the net result is to sort of attenuate the degree to which there will be growth. And that's what is the uncertainty at the moment. Um, and that's why modelers are brought into, into play to try and predict what is likely to happen. Having said that, having said that, we still have half of the adult population who have not had both uh, both doses of, of vaccine. We clearly have the the the, the school children issue, um, and I think it's becoming more and clearer and clearer that children 
have become the a, a, a sort of reservoir of of infections transmissions and whilst we can debate about the impact of those infections on children of course those children um, when schools are open, it's not just about whether those schools are safe. It's that is that there's a lot of other things happen. Children come home, they're multi-generation households, teachers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, people moving around the, the the community, and so that is a real risk at the moment because, of course, children are relatively un um, are, are unvaccinated. But also, um, the government has now. Um, had suggested that um, and given instruction that, that secondary school children should not wear masks. Um, and, and that's one of the things we, we, we feel very strongly about within Independence Age is that, you know, schools, whilst not closing, because of course we've got to protect education, need to be as protected as they can in order to ensure that 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 doesn't become the the conduit of further transmissions of infection. So all of those things come into play. It is um, it's unclear, clearly at the moment, the degree to which the current surge of infect low level surge, but nevertheless surge of infections will lead to hospitalizations and deaths. There's many different bit pieces of information circulating around, but um, the net result of all of this uncertainty has led sort of us within Independent Sage to um, recommend at this stage that that we should not be expecting to move ahead on the 21st of June. Before we talk about the so-called, I suppose, Freedom Day, whatever you want to call it, on the 21st of June, what do we know about the Delta variant? Uh, this was, of course, known as the Indian variant. It became very unhelpful, just, you know, people sticking, a just just so where it happens, the country where it's first identified, not even necessarily where it started. Spanish flu, of course, notoriously called Spanish flu, and it almost certainly did not start in Spain. Well, it didn't start in Spain. Um, so tell, tell us about the Delta variant and how. what do we know about it in terms of increased, not just transmission, but I suppose more worryingly, more severe illness? Yes. Yeah, so, but before I, I address that, if you don't mind, is, is something about these variants. Um, there are um, viruses every time they transmit, um, they they must replicate. They must make more of themselves. And pretty much all viruses um, mutate as that happens. And of course, therefore, there's always the capacity for these new variants to to develop. We call them variants, but all viruses have mutations, or some sometimes just called mutants, sometimes called variants, some sometimes called lineages or clades or subtypes of of, of, of certain viruses. And so. It is to be expected that this happens. Now, of course, some of those variants, you know, have such an advantage. What I mean, an advantage is in an evolutionary sense is, you know, they will, for instance, preferentially infect compared to another another, another variant. And the reasons why that may be is, for instance, they may um, because of mutations, they may bind better to the cell that they infect within your throat or your nose. And that may lead to a higher rate with which that virus replicates. It makes more virus. And therefore, if you're infected with that, you can more easily infect somebody else because you're you're breathing out more virus compared to someone who is infected with another variant. So these are all the sort of things that 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 lead to variation. But but, you know, we now have some clear core variants that seem to take hold and have have emerged over over time. Um, and we know that this this Delta variant, and you're absolutely right, Owen, to sort of highlight the nomenclature here, um, and and even the, the the subtlety of that is that you know we we call variants the Brazilian variant, South African variant, um, you know UK variant or Kent variant, and so on, only because these the an Indian variant because these are the places that can actually do the genetic analysis to to identify that, but of course it may have, these may have emerged elsewhere, but. I'm putting that aside. This Delta variant differs um, uh, in two ways from previous variants circulating within the UK. One is um, it appears to um, transmit more um, than than the previous variant, and and the previous variant, um, the 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 Kent variant, now called the Alpha variant. Um, was itself an you know, an, an an upgrade on the very first um, uh, variant circulating in the world, 
um, it transmits more. And we don't know why it transmits more, but clearly some of the mutations in the virus that have led to a different shape of the virus, maybe the way that the virus um, attacks the cells, binds to cells in the body, maybe something else which makes it replicate more. But whatever the net result is, whatever the cause, the net result is um, if you or I are infected with that variant compared to a previous variant, we would be more likely to, to spread that on. So that's what it means by more transmissible. We know, so the suggestions are um, something like 50 to 70% uh, more transmissible. I saw Matt Hancock is, you know, was on the MAR program this morning, um, said 40%. I suspect it's a bit more than 40% um, increased transmissibility. But the second thing, which I think is 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 more important in the context of of um, of the current situation is it it appears to evade some of the immune immunity conferred by vaccines, and so we're in this situation where it's now clear that really you need two vaccines, you need two doses of vaccines to best prevent being infected with this variant compared to one dose. Whereas, of course, right at the beginning of the vaccine rollout, if we remember, then um, the government, well, MHRA and JCVI, the Joint Committee of Vaccination and Immunization, um, made the suggestion that, in fact, there could be a 12-week gap between the two doses of vaccines, and that would maximise the coverage of vaccines in the country. Um, you know, I thought that was a sensible idea at the time. Um, um, based on the fact that one dose of vaccine was probably very effective. But what we're seeing now with this variant is that one dose of vaccine seems to be um, uh, only very partially effective, maybe 30% protective compared to what we thought against previous variants. And so that's the other way that this virus seems to ha have taken hold. And, um, and finally, of those coming into hospital at the moment, um, the, the majority of people coming to hospital with this variant have not had immunization, but there are a significant number who've had one dose of vaccine rather than both, both doses of vaccine. So I think those are the two key ways in which this virus is, um, is a worry. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I suppose there's also the issue of, of, of long COVID, uh, which is often erased from this conversation because I suppose a lot of people would look at the fact that um, thankfully now over 50% of the adult population have two shots, which is great. And that overwhelmingly does cover most older people, most elderly people and people with underlying health conditions. But when people, I think, often say long COVID, a lot of people shrug and go, well, but actually, I mean, I know I know lots of people with long COVID. It isn't actually a joke. So I suppose that's the issue, isn't it, that you've got uh, half, you've got a, a half the adult population who haven't had two shots. They could be susceptible to that. And But also, do we also think, and there seems to be evidence suggesting that the vaccine program is actually effective against long COVID? Yeah, so um, so I think fundamentally here the problem is, um, is the issue is, it, and it is, this is really comes to why within Independent Sage we've always sort of been arguing of a strategy of towards zero COVID. Um, that doesn't mean that that we think, and certainly I don't think 
that we will be able to completely uh, eradicate this virus from from the world you know that's you know it's very difficult to do but we recognize that there is a cost to allowing this virus to circulate even if it's saying well it's only in children it's circulating and 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 they don't get it ill it is because of issues such as long covid um, now, um, which of course may occur, or long-term manifestations of COVID that may occur um, both in people who've had symptoms, but also maybe in people who've not had symptoms, and and there is a very low, there, there's a dis, you know, dis, discrete number proportion of children who we know have long-term consequences of COVID, whether or not they were they had symptoms to start with. Now, long COVID is is a sort of broad term um, and it is very likely that there are multiple different syndromes or collection of of symptoms and causalities of those symptoms under that umbrella so for instance we do know that um that that one of the reasons why people get very ill with covid and unfortunately die is that it precipitates small blood clots um, in, in in blood clots in small blood vessels that um, that mean that there are many organs that can be adversely affected the kidneys the heart the brain and so forth and that that's actually the cause of of much disease within within an acute COVID but of course the, the fact that that is a manifestation of, co of, of, of COVID means that there will be those who do survive, there may be long-term consequences of, 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 uh, uh, for that. There's also, of course, um, those people who do get very ill um, and have to spend a long time in intensive care. Um, in some cases, we, we know, know of people, obviously, that spent two or three months in intensive care um, in, in induced coma. We, we recognize, fully recognize that that sort of experience gives long-term, you know, um, uh, has long-term consequences in terms of slowly getting back to, to health. And of course, there's the other group of psychological morbidity associated with, um, with COVID. So all of those things come within this term long COVID. And I think at this moment in time, it, you know, it, it's premature to be able to be, to, to be absolutely, you know, clear about what, what this is. It is probably a collection of different things. Um, we, there are, there is evidence. Uh, you, 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 I agree with you that vaccination, obviously vaccination that prevents infection will prevent those consequences of long COVID. There's some, some evidence I've seen that vaccination after infection um, uh, may also be good. It's certainly good for the, your immune system. So if you've had natural infection and then you have uh, immunization, then your antibody levels go sky high and you're probably much better protected in the longer term as well from possible reinfection and so on. So it's a complicated picture, but, but nevertheless something that we need to be looking at in detail. And I think will be, there will be, of course, these consequences going once, once, once we have got over the pandemic uh, for the long term. So you, you mentioned, obviously, the 21st of June. So do you think, I mean, Independence Day just saying that shouldn't go ahead. Do you think it will? And but I suppose even even well, more depressing for a lot of people. Could could things actually go backwards? Could you see a scenario where more restrictions are brought in than the current situation we have now? Well, we issued a, a, an a emergency statement um, on on Friday at our press conference on Friday. Um, uh, yeah, we were sticking our necks out, but really, I think, you know, we were not going against the main cons scientific consensus. We were very much all, I think, agree that it's a very risky time. And of course, the government have all the time talked about, you know, uh, being guided by data, not dates. But as soon as it sort of identified this Midsummer's Day, 21st of June, Freedom Day, whatever, then, of course, everyone has been focused on that. Um, and unfortunately, expectations are high amongst many parts of the population that you know things will go back to 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 normal so we wanted to actually put some caution there and and um at a relatively early stage because we think you know people's expectations should be tempered um and be guided by um the the, the data now our motivation here 
is that we don't want to end up having to go into another lockdown. I mean, the lockdown that we've been through since early January to, um, to last month has been a very significant um, uh, lockdown. And of course, there's costs to that. There's educational costs, there's social costs, there's mental health costs, as well as cost the economy. So we're driven by the motivation we don't want there to need to be another lockdown. And therefore, it's not only that we arguing that we may not, we should not progress the the opening up on the 21st of, of, um, of, of June, but also we can strengthen other aspects of infection control within society that will minimize ongoing transmissions of infection. So we've identified six things. First of all, that we want more support and we, we're banging on about this, but far more support for those who are asked to isolate, um, either because they themselves are infected or because they're in contact with infected individuals. We know that people who, who are asked to isolate, only about 30, 40% do so. And clearly that's to do with the costs to them usually financial costs and therefore there needs to be real much much more significant support for that and that's an essential bit part of the core bit of infection control we also want to um, ensure that that um, that schools have better ventilation we're going into summer term children are going back to school tomorrow um, masks should be implemented for secondary school children and there should be a very rapid assessment and um, and funding of better ventilation luckily we're in summer it'd be easier to have outdoor activities and so on we want to stress that the third thing is that um, the it's the indoor events which we fear most I mean um, uh, transmissions outside um, are, are re relatively rare um, and and so we really want to make sure that indoor venues whether it's schools whether it's pubs whether it's clubs they are assessed for good infection control good ventilation um, and I think that's that would be the most likely thing to not go ahead on the 21st of of June, the indoor events, because of course, um, that is where spread happens. Um, we want to then with regard to, of course, border controls, which have been really flaky um, um, in, in the UK, and, and the whole green, amber, red stratification is meaningless, really, because um, it not only can there be rapid reversals of that, which really leave people um, in, in difficulty, take the Portugal situation, um, which there's, there has moved from green to amber recently. But of course, when you're talking about airports, people flying around the world, just to allocate a country to a certain stratification of red, amber or green, it does does not really deal with people coming through airport hubs, which of course, you know, means that everyone's mixed together. And if someone's coming from Istanbul or Dubai, you haven't got a clue where that's where they started their journey or where they were on in transit. So we want to strengthen that in a much strong, stronger quarantine situation. And then finally, the vaccine would we'll vaccine rollout, as we've talked about, but, but also we want to add that the contribution to global vaccines um, um, we want the G7 uh, UK to really commit rather than just using words. They really commit to um, to supporting vaccine rollout around the world, because, of course, we're not just an island. Um, and as we've learned with the both the Delta variant coming into the country, but of course, our own variants going out to the country. India also has the B117, the, the alpha variant there, which originate from the UK. So that's a, there's a constellation of activities that we think can be done, should be done, and that will start to help us avoid a future lockdown. Just lastly, because it's, you know, it's a Sunday and I've gone for a run. It's a bit overcast, but it's still pretty, pretty decent weather. Craig Berkey asks, what, what we need to, oh, just doesn't ask, it just says, but puts it to you. What we need to do is randomise the distribution of the remaining vaccines to give even more protection faster what do you think about that i mean i know i've seen online a lot of younger people genuine younger people not people like me who are 36 but people you know because at the moment it's a bit over 30s i think there is talk of lowering next week to 25 plus which is very exciting but you know as you said you know i mean definitely school children clearly are big hubs of transmission but you know there is a lot of the surge in cases is amongst younger people obvious because 
they're congregating together and they're not vaccinated. So what do you think? Do you think we could change the approach of the of the vaccination program? And also, I did see, though I did, I did uh, Rob Delaney, he's a great comedian, he pointed out that you could now change your second shot uh, appointment be, and, and get it earlier uh, because they're uh, trying to reduce the gap the eight, uh, to eight weeks. So I tried that, and unfortunately, I managed to move my back two days. I mean, better than nothing, but that's all it could manage. Uh, but I'm just wondering about what your thoughts about both of those things in terms of uh, what we do about the vaccination program going forward. Yeah, I, I, so so I, I, I what's what's really worked well is the fact the vaccination program. I think you've also mentioned this has been rolled out through the NHS through existing systems. My, I was dead scared early on that this would be another thing outsourced like test and trace. But but you know it, it's made use of NHS systems and NHS systems work well when there's a clear algorithm. We use the data. We use primary care records. It's this right. It's the over sixty fives now. Now it's the fifties to sixties. It's also those with with um, with risk factors and so on. And that has made that's contributed to the effectiveness of 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 what's happened because it allows primary care who are identifying lists of people to invite in and so forth to do so in a coherent way adding something like randomization you know well who who randomly selects people what are the systems by which that's going to work and i think that would sort of that would just complicate matters to the extent that probably not being the most effective way of rolling out vaccines so i know that people are missing out at the moment um uh, younger people are missing out but nevertheless the strength and we all uh, applaud that that the, the the rollout program has to some extent been successful because it has been based around very coherent algorithms it's easy for for the nhs to start to deal with oh and just very lastly i will let you go but craig also asked do you think the next step could be split maybe less social distancing outside even if indoor restrictions are kept um so i don't think um so there's a couple of things so i don't think um i, I think outdoors you know, is is it, it, being outdoors is safe. Now, of course, that's an easy thing to say because when you go in a, a, an outdoor event, you know, if it's a huge event, um, then of course the, you, they're loose. There are all sorts of indoor spaces that you know people get on transport to go to those events and so forth. So I think we've just got to be mindful of that. But 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 um, I, I, I'm I'm much more relaxed about outdoor events. I mean, the the, the last. 15 months of the pandemic has shown that the risk of spread outdoors is very little. The, you know, the, the, the problem with outdoor big events is that people have to get there and they have to use public transport. They, you know, indoor things on the way. That's 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 the risk. So I, I think that that's there. And I would just add a little bit, you know, about stratification of people. I heard Tony Blair this morning talking about um, whether, in fact, vaccines can actually free up people and you have the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Unvaccinated can't do this, that and the other. Vaccinated can do. And I think that would be a disaster because it would just amplify the inequalities we're not touched on inequalities so far but there clearly is an inequity in access to vaccines and and the, and the bit you know the wish to take you know and hesitancy and we need to be mindful of that and the biggest worry uh, before we finish the biggest worry i've got is that the the next the next sort of surges will be as a, as a little bit we've seen in bolton blackburn and so is is in really disadvantaged communities, there becomes localized outbreaks amongst multi-generation households where there's less vaccine, vaccine for whatever reason, comorbidities and so forth. Um, in the same way that we see with tuberculosis now, you know, it's not, it's, uh, you know, uh, inequality in health has led to these pockets. And my fear is that that becomes the norm um, and government can almost wash their hands, say, well, that's your problem. Um, it's a local problem. We don't need to instigate any national policies. Professor Dean and Pillay, it's been an absolute honour. That was, I learned a huge amount there. So I hope everyone else also found it, and, and they did. I can see the comments. People found it extremely educational uh, and informative, uh, very sober um, and detailed information, which people people need. So thank you so so much really appreciate it and the work of you and independent sage has been absolutely critical throughout this crisis and it is worth stating that because as i've said if the advice of people like yourself and independent sage had been listened to we would have still suffered a disaster but there's a magnitude of disasters and this country has suffered of course the biggest peacetime catastrophe of 
as modern times. Thank, well, thank, you. thank you very much. I just I just say that's a very kind of you to acknowledge Independence Age. Um, the Sun did a hit job with on us today, uh, and and Toby Young, you know, behind it all, and and so on. But um, um, I, I'd far rather your 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 views. So thank thank you and uh, and your listeners. A hit job from Toby Young is one of the greatest accolades that any human being can ever aspire to. So you should uh, you should frame that and uh, and consider it to be a great achievement great thank you thank you so much take care have, and enjoy your okay. sunday bye take care bye-bye brilliant stuff um before i bring in uh james Moodray, who's fantastic um if you're watching uh live do click through to youtube and press the like button you can use super chat to put questions as we've been reading out uh to our next guest as well also i forgot to mention the podcast Obviously, a lot of you listen. I mean, a huge part of our audience is the podcast, uh, which is going very well indeed. Um, so do, if wherever you get your podcast from, do download, subscribe, um, and listen there. Because, you know, you might be going for a run, you might be commuting. Like every other ways, you know, you don't necessarily want to see my, maybe you find my face annoying. Maybe my face actively irritates you. Well, you can hide my face by listening to it on the podcast. But we do also really appreciate you watching live and watching the videos. So if my face isn't too objectionable, keep doing that. Um, the, our next guest is the brilliant, as I said, James Meadway, who I'm going to bring in right now. Hello, James, director Hello. of the Economy Forum. Brilliant writer. Do read his writings, New Statesman elsewhere. If you've not been reading them, sort it out. Google, Google now, James Meadway, New Statesman, EG. How you doing, mate? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Very well. You're in Bahrain, actually. I am in Bahrain. Yes, yes. It's extremely what's the, warm. What's the temperature today in Bahrain? Uh, just, I've just checked, actually. It's uh, 40 degrees. There you go. Oh, that's summer weather. <laughs> I mean, hot. we're both northerners, plastic northerners, yes. if we're going to be honest, James. Um, and I don't think um, my Stockport body is not... My, I still go 25. I don't know how you're managing. He's not on holiday, by the way. I should just clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, should, well, why is he holidaying Bahrain? No, no, I'm not on holiday in Bahrain. I'm not doing any kind of influencer, you know, go to the Gulf and, and take <laughs> pictures of yourself by the pool sort of thing. Um, it, no, it's, it's, I'm, I'm here because my wife's working here and have been for a while. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's not the, – the temperature, you get used to it, but not that used to it. And possibly my pink complexion is, is telling its own story there. <laughs> the lighting is protecting you from <laughs> exposing that. Yeah, so just to, just to kick off, I mean, I suppose I'm inter- one of the things I'm interested in, and I think a lot of people are interested in, is, you know, if we think about, you know, what the lasting, you know, will this be a political economic upheaval? Hmm. I suppose two words often spring to mind, which is Spanish flu. And the reason I say that is Spanish flu doesn't actually really get or hasn't really got much of a hearing hmm. in history. We have recently spoken more about Spanish flu because gestures wildly at the world um but so-called spanish flu which i believe actually first was identified in utah or something but because spain was a neutral country during world war one reporting restrictions were lifted and that's why people could speak about spanish flu spanish flu was different of course it was influenza a lot of people actually died of secondary infections because uh, bacterial infections we didn't have antibiotics but in any case it didn't seem to leave much of a impact uh that's how it's often portrayed it was stuck a bit because world war one was there which just kind of takes a lot of attention then you got the rise of fascism in world war ii so maybe it's squeezed a bit but what do you think i mean do you look back at spanish flu and think well actually the lasting consequences of this pandemic won't be actually that significant uh and except for people thinking to themselves i just never want to think about this ever again and the there won't be the political upheaval, economic upheaval people might have thought I mean, look, the, the, the one that's quite striking with, with this so far is, is that most of what's happened looks like a continuation of things that are happening anyway. The, if, you, if you take from 2008, let's say, uh, and the financial crisis, you see everywhere across the world, governments are more inclined to intervene in the economy one way or the other. I mean, most obviously to rescue banks, but stretching out a bit, you see the return of industrial strategy, uh, governments deliberately investing in different industries to make them grow, um, the, the trade wars that was brewing between, brewing, I mean, it broke out between the US and China under Donald Trump, continuing, by the way, uh, under Joe Biden in, in various different forms. So all of that's like the government is already there in the economy, and what you get with COVID is a massive increase 
in the government being in the economy in different ways. I mean, most obviously with the lockdown, but also the huge shift in funding towards uh, NHS and health services, towards furlough, that kind of thing. So, so that that's an acceleration of what was happening already. Similar thing with this sort of breakdown of globalization. You know, it was already falling as a share of GDP uh, over the last ten years or so. Obviously, it's gone off a cliff, uh, certainly in services trade in the last year. So that was already there. So, so it's it's kind of an acceleration of a load of things already happening. Uh, and that looks like the, the biggest, most immediate sort of impact from it. And what you have to try and take a view then is whether those things roll back and we just sort of get back to like where we would have been otherwise. Frankly, it, it doesn't look like it. I mean, it was a very good discussion you just had with, with Dina, with the, with the professor there, about you know the long-term consequences of this and how uh, waves of COVID come and go and what the impact is in the economy. And what it starts to look like is relative to any period of time in certainly the last 70 years, but easily back to 1918, the Spanish flu, you have this kind of permanent medical condition that's now going to act as a constraint on what the economy does. So that even if in your particular part of the world, you know, whether it's New Zealand or up until recently in Vietnam or Taiwan, you get rid of COVID, you still have to maintain tight controls on what's going on because the rest of the world hasn't. And that's a big cost. And that changes how your economy uh, operates and can operate. And of course, what you find is after a while, the costs of doing this are great. People want to get rid of the lockdowns, get rid of the restrictions. And lo and behold, you find, as they found in Taiwan and Vietnam, uh, outbreaks popping up and a, and a third wave uh, erupting there. So so this, this is how the thing starts to look into the future, that we're, we're going to end up dealing with this over a long period of time. Therefore, it shapes what, what the world is like. And that's partly because we live in a, a more connected world than in 1918. I mean, very, very obviously so. Partly because the way the labour market operates is very different, that you don't have, as you saw in 1918, great chunks of the world. You know, if you look at not quite the majority of victims, but of the sort of 50 million or so people who died from the pandemic in 1918, you'll find 20 million are in British India. And they're basically sort of shoved off over there and just left separate from the rest of the economy. And the thing washes over, kills a huge number of people and then after a while you, you find that you know this is why it, this is why it dies off you have either people are immune or they're dead i mean basically this is how a pandemic ends up uh, finished so so the impact plays out differently because we have different institutions now uh, and the kind of form of the disease is different also of course you know, this is a disease that unlike influenza has a long period of time where people are asymptomatic you can go around infecting other people not realize you've got it yourself if you have flu that period of time is much shorter so it tends to be a more sort of immediate response to it that anybody he has they know they're ill they stay at home they do all these sorts of things the thing is going to play out differently is, is, is roughly what we're, what we're looking at here the world economy is different governments were already intervening more than they used to and the disease that we're dealing with underneath this looks rather different to things we've seen in the past or at least compared to you know, spanish flu for example in terms of the economic consequences, I mean, Britain is one of the worst hit economically of a comparable nation because mm -hmm. the geniuses in charge of the country decided that um, taking tough measures against COVID would damage the economy. So they delayed lockdown three times, including Rishi Sunak, who uh, the other week uh, by uh, the, Boris Johnson's former right-hand man, uh, the big Dom, um, he uh, tried to let Rishi Sunak off the hook and, and basically claimed that Rishi Sunak had got all the calls right. Well, Rishi Sunak brought in lockdown sceptics into number into number 10 to in in uh, last autumn to successfully convince the government not to introduce a second lockdown, which they ended up having to do longer and cases spiralled. And then we got what, what we saw at Christmas and the variant. Uh, the more the, the virus is allowed to circulate, the more risk of variants. And we've seen... We've seen that obviously with devastating consequences. So we we have suffered one of the worst economic consequences precisely because we didn't take the tough measures necessary. Um, but I mean, if you so, how bad is the damage in Britain compared to elsewhere? And is it going to lead to scarring in the economy, mm -hmm. or actually, is what going to happen basically whether it's you know whenever we're finally free of restrictions? A load of people, I'm talking middle class people who've been able to save during the pandemic, they're suddenly going to go and splash the cash. That's going to mm -hmm. lift the economy and actually will have a big boom as a consequence and that will reverse the damage. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's worth underlining the point about Rishi Sunak. I mean, something like Eat Out to Help Out was, was it's hard to think of a more stupid and destructive economic policy in this country's history. I mean, you know, people have done some daft things with the economy before. They've never 
actively subsidise people getting infected uh, during a pandemic. And we know from the evidence on, on infections, clear evidence produced by researchers down in Warwick University, that Eat Out, Help Out did lead to an increase in cases. We were paying for people to go and get infected with this during a pandemic. It is, it is absolutely crazy. Uh, and it needs to be pinned on Rishi Sunak and the Treasury uh, as an act of gross irresponsibility in, in the middle of this. If you're talking about the, the sort of long-term impacts, I mean, what happened last year, you're absolutely right, is that uh, this country was walloped uh, by uh, COVID-19 because of a combination of things. I mean, the one you mentioned is important, which is that the delay in lockdown ends up costing you more because you have to do a much harder, heavier lockdown for a longer period of time afterwards. I think also you dig out the Marmot Review published at the end of um, end of last year by a very eminent public health uh, specialist, Professor, Professor Marmot, who um, looks at the evidence around COVID-19 and makes very clear that 10 years of austerity and existing health inequality meant that we had worse outbreaks in Britain. It was, it was a worse form of disease here because it's an unequal society and you'd applied austerity. So that also adds up eventually to an economic impact as well because you just get a worse outbreak, which costs you more. So that's, that's all there from last year. What you see for this year is that we got, basically Britain gets the vaccination right. That is due to the NHS above all else. It has very little to do with the government. I mean, the most you can say is they, they threw some money at it and that was a good guess. Uh, but a country with an NHS and a, a very good sort of medical research system is likely to be able to do something like the vaccination rollout in, in the way that has happened. And of course, you find you know, the population in Britain is basically happier about vaccines than many others around the world. There's not much, there is some, but there's not much in the way of sort of anti-vax sentiment out there. So you get this very effective rollout. You're then able to sort of move the economy faster than you might otherwise towards opening up. We can see in the opening up that's taping, taking place right now, just as you saw temporarily last year during the summer, is that you know once you kind of release things a bit and people go out spending a bit more, uh, the economy recovers and it's almost automatic. The bit that you throw in on top of this and the bit that the government's pinning its hopes on, I'll come back to why that isn't quite going to work out like this, is exactly as you say. There's a large number of people who, you know, if you were working at home last year and, OK, you couldn't really go out so much and you weren't going to go on holiday you end up potentially just saving quite a lot of money. And that quite a lot of money is, is, is absolutely, by now, it's about £160 billion pounds stacked up mostly in sort of middle-class bank accounts up and down the country. And the government's basically betting very heavily that this money will turn into spending and that will drive the economy through uh, without them having to intervene very much in, in what happens. Now, this relies on, first of all, a large amount of that money actually being spent. The best or even the most optimistic sort of survey evidence says that maybe 10% of it is going to get spent. That's, that's from uh, Deutsche Bank. That's their, their sort of estimate on, on what people are looking to spend in the near future. That's one part of it. The other part of it is, of course, this only happens if people are confident about what's going to happen in the future. Otherwise, they'll sit in the money. And if you go and look at the Bank of England surveys, you find most people saying, actually, I'd rather sit in the money because I'm a bit worried about what's going to happen in the future. If we hit further ways and further restrictions and the, the, the reopening process doesn't happen in the way that the government would like it to happen, that in fact we're still having to deal with a global environment for uh, the disease, which means you can't just release everything. You still have restrictions on travel. You still potentially have some restrictions in place in Britain. The economy isn't going to recover like that. And that's when you start to get into the longer term impacts, which is I think unlike what you might see with big recessions in the past, when you take the 1980s, you get this idea of scarring, that people are lose their jobs, often in manufacturing, uh, and they're a bit older, you know, sort of 30s, 40s, into their 50s, and it's hard for them to get another job. It's, it's, the, it's the sort of situation you see kind of, it turns into films, yeah, the full Monty's the sort of classic example of it, that people aren't able to go and get another similar job somewhere down the line. It's difficult to retrain. You get this kind of long-term unemployment that's built up. It, it probably isn't going to play out quite the same way in that sense with this one. But what you are likely to find, and if you dig out you know, recent publication from the management consultants McKinsey, if you dig out what these people are talking about is that there are just some jobs in retail and other parts of the economy that depend on kind of human contact is likely to have disappeared. People are doing a lot more shopping online, for example. So there's less demand for uh, high street stores. So there's less demand for people working in them. And if you take that sort of effect, they're talking, you know, 2.5 million, they reckon, jobs being churned uh, into the next decade or so. Now, that's actually a big, big sort of economic upset. And that's lots and lots of things happening away uh, underneath in terms of people having to move, lose their jobs potentially and move somewhere else. That looks like a long-term impact from all of this. And that's something that potentially also drags on growth into the future. Uh, and instead of the rosy sort of picture the government and its supporters are trying to paint, we get something that looks, a lot, unfortunately, a lot bleaker for absolutely everyone. I was very interested in a tweet you tweeted, obviously, 
um, a couple of days ago, I think. And it was in response to the, uh, oh, it was yesterday, the settlement, um, the international agreement on corporation tax agreeing a global fall and about how this represents, how this showed, you know, we're looking at the death of neoliberalism. Um, so I'm interested in, because obviously that's partly linked to the current crisis mm. and, the, and and what that means for, you know, obviously it's, it's slightly bleak on one level that we have a conservative government well it's bleak on every level that we have a conservative government in this country because uh, and and i and i and an opposition party that's failing to do its job but offer a coherent vision because in world war ii obviously you had the labor party which said when we win the war we've got to win the peace and this is what the peace is going to look like and we're going to transform society in this national emergency the labor party well it's not really offering it's not saying anything it's just there <laughs> somehow but what do you i'm interested in that because obviously um you know the u.s left the kind of insurgency the u.s left over the last few years has had an impact in american politics and the center of gravity politically within the democrats but what do you mean just tell us what you think in terms of that international agreement and how it links into of course the crisis the economic crisis linked to covid and where you think it's heading in terms of a new settlement? Well, this is look. This is a key moment in the whole thing. People sometimes, if you talk about neoliberalism, it's, it's a sort of the rules of the economic game that we, we've all kind of lived under for probably what forty odd years in this country, really since Thatcher, maybe a bit before that, but really since Thatcher. That says, you know, markets are the best way to run society. Uh, big corporations should be allowed to do what they want. Don't tax rich people too much because if you do, they won't create so many jobs. I mean, that kind of set of, of almost common sense rules that we all sort of deeply ingested and, and understand well, and that governments of all colours, including Labour, in the last time it was in government, basically adhered to that way of thinking about how the economy operates. A key part of that was you should not be taxing corporations too heavily because that will detract or take money away from them investing and creating jobs and delivering growth for everybody else. I mean, that's a sort of core neoliberal proposition. And what you see for about 40 years is that Laid actually by, by the US, but pulled along by the appearance, uh, this massive use actually of tax havens across the world, you get a kind of race to the bottom in taxes on corporations. Every big economy, loads and loads of smaller economies, basically everyone starts trying to cut the amount of taxes they're applying to corporations there. And it's tax havens are a key part of that, because once you have corporations, particularly uh, if you look at the, the big tech, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, the companies that are really able to, to don't really operate with obvious physical factories. It's relatively easy for them to say, oh, actually, we made our money in some tax haven. Actually, all these profits come from Bermuda, would you believe it? You know, that kind of thing. They can really cut the amount of taxes uh, they face. And, and that removes, of course, resources that, that governments uh, would otherwise have. Now, for 40 years, you basically had this race to the bottom taking place. Britain continued at the leading edge of it. The new Labour government cut corporation tax again and again and again. Uh, the coalition government, the Tory Liberal uh, coalition government, the Tories again have cut, cut corporation tax. So to suddenly get in place this agreement, it's not that sudden, it's been sort of brewing for a while, but to get this agreement in place amongst the G7, the sort of most of the biggest country, uh, economies in the world, excluding China and a, and a few others, has now grown very rapidly and are very large. But to get that agreement with them on what a minimum tax rate would look like for corporations is a huge turn. I mean, it's a real reverse of what's happened in the last 40 years. So if I say neoliberalism is dying, I mean, this is a big turn against it. Uh, and, and it's one that's happening not just in the national economies, like in this country, this government is doing something different. This is one that's now coordinated turn among some of the biggest economies on the planet. And it's likely the G20, the sort of next set of big economies, is going to agree to it, and then potentially the OECD uh, uh, later in the year. So, so it's important. Now, the actual level of taxation proposed is only 15%. Biden administration originally said 25%. But even to get to that minimum is a step in a different direction to where you're going. It, it should be higher. There should be more money from corporations going to governments so you can spend it on the things that we need. But because that turn has happened, it doesn't look to me like the old way of running the world, the old rules of the game, are being applied in quite the same way, that things are, are a moment of flux for us. And it could be in a good way. I think this step in taxation is a good, positive thing. I think some of what the Biden administration is doing, talking about reinforcing and expanding trade union rights. I mean, this is, again, it's not happened in the US for 40 years. That's a good, positive step. And then you see elements of it that are clearly you know, completely detrimental to that. that, that uh, lots of demands for permanent restrictions on, on the movement of people, more border controls, more surveillance at work, all sorts of different ways in which this can play out that are not necessarily neoliberal in the way we'd normally recognize it as in 
corporations and the free market are making the running here, but involve the state trying to shape the economy in different ways. And, and it's an open-ended process as to whether that is mostly a good thing or mostly a bad thing. And that's what we need to fight for. Lastly, um, I'll, and then I can leave you to your 40 centigrade degree heat. Um, zero COVID is something which some on the left mm. have called for. I know some of the socialist campaign group MPs, that's the left parliamentary bloc within the Labour Parliamentary Party, Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, it's not going to happen, is it? I mean, it's this idea as well. I mean, for those who don't know what zero COVID is, I think it's self-explanatory. It's obviously the eradication of the virus. Um but the economic, the, the 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 costs of trying to do that are so immense and it would have to be globally executed because isn't the problem now that countries which did get to near zero COVID are struggling because other countries aren't near zero yeah, COVID. Exactly. And unless you ban people from traveling ever again, which I, I think we all agree is not feasible, um, we can't really do it. So actually we're going to have to, you know, focus on mass vaccination um, in order to, and, and then we're going to be stuck with it as a, as a, you know, like flu with a, or the cold that you either get, if you feel under the weather, it's either COVID, the flu, you know, you get booster shots yeah. and babbling. What do you think? No, no, I, mean, I think that's basically, basically the, the case here. The, the issue with thinking that zero COVID is a sustainable strategy for any country is that you have to then try and think that every other country is going to do it as well. And what you've got, because we live in a competitive global economy, a capitalist economy, what you have is lots and lots of countries and companies who are close to those national states all looking at how they gain an advantage on, on anybody else. That's how capitalism operates. It's a competitive system. So if you say, okay, domestically, we're going to apply zero COVID, that can look for a short period of time quite good. You can sort of run an economy like this for a period of time, uh, maintaining tight controls and, on borders and things. So it depends what your economy is like. If you have, for instance, one of the busiest airport hubs in the world sitting in the middle of your economy, then imposing those tight restrictions is always going to impose a, a certain amount of cost. I mean, that's what Britain has with Heathrow. That you can try and maintain this, but the cost is great. The fact that you're restricting really what people have to do quite quite substantially by this point, just you know, we've been through lockdown, it's not pleasant uh, to do this. There's a demand to get rid of the thing. So there's a real pressure to remove it um, faster and certainly before the rest of the world has, has got COVID under control. And that's what you see happening in Taiwan and Vietnam are the two that, that sort of stick out in the minute. They dealt with it last year. They had a kind of zero COVID or very close to zero COVID policy. And it did involve tight controls over who goes in and out. Same thing in New Zealand, extremely tight border controls. Who goes in and out, uh, you know, lockdowns and, and all kinds of forms of social distancing, and you maintain it. And then they got the vaccination, then they released, and then suddenly you get this sort of surging in cases in Vietnam, not, not have the, the vaccination in practice. So, so that's, that's the problem we're saying you're going to be able to do this, that you can try this, but you need everyone else to do this. And if you have a global system that's really bad at coordinating things, that isn't going to happen. You're not going to get a coordinated zero COVID, because obviously if you're a country, if everybody else is doing zero COVID and you, you as a country aren't, you don't need to. Because why would you? Everyone else can do the cost of zero COVID. You just do nicely out of the fact that everybody else is trying to do zero COVID. So you won't do it. And that same logic applies to everyone. So no one does it in the end. That's where we end up. Uh, similar thing goes with vaccines, unfortunately. You know, if we want to think about mind, vaccine hesitancy, it's an issue in Britain. It is. And, and it is a problem. But it's not the thing that's going to undermine the, the, the progress of vaccination globally. The problem with vaccination globally is that at this point in time, about 2% of the population of sub-Saharan Africa has got the vaccine. The, the COVAX program set up by the World Health Organization to distribute vaccines across the world, already inadequate, by the way, has basically collapsed. The vaccines aren't turning up to be distributed. So we're not going to get an effective vaccination program unless we get everybody vaccinated. And to do that is a massive logistical challenge of a kind that humanity in general, I don't think, has ever completed and we have a, a social system that's really not designed to solve problems like this it's never had to do it before it's based in competition it's not going to willingly try and do that now the imf have a, have a proposal out this week for a 50 billion pound global program on trying to get 40 percent of the world vaccinated by what the end of next year or so it's pretty ambitious already it's not totally adequate but it's already ambitious 
even getting to that is going to be a challenge. So unfortunately, you end up being quite pessimistic about what the prospects are for COVID in general, for the British economy in particular, because the general setup of the thing is we're going to be stuck with this some period of time, at least in part, because although we have the tools and the technology to actually handle this, which is basically mass vaccination in the first instance, we have a global system that isn't able to handle this. James, thank you so much. We covered a lot of ground there, which is absolutely fantastic and really, really appreciate it. Um, stay safe out there in Bahrain. You're under lockdown now, aren't you? Yeah, you've got yeah that's right. Yes, yes. But as of last week, there's cases have surged, despite vaccination in this case. It's not, it's not good. That's not ideal. Uh, well, that's a cheery note to end on. <laughs> Sorry, um, <laughs> but really appreciate it. And do follow James on uh, on Twitter. He is Meadwa, as in his last name, but with a J. Because that's because he's called James. So it's M E A D W A J. So do follow him because he's always always very insightful and uh, full of interesting ideas and perspectives, which is what we like. So cheers, James. Really appreciate it, and I will see you. Cheers, I don't know when. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Take care, buddy. Take care, mate. See ya. Um, two brilliant guests uh that was exceptionally informative and educational i've learned a huge amount don't go yet before i finish oh yeah by the way if you're watching live do like the video helps other people watch it because most people don't watch this live um and do subscribe and the podcast i'm obsessed now with evangelizing about the podcast because it's doing so well so many people are listening to it so this will go out on the podcast so you can listen to this wherever you are whenever you want um, and we do have a lot of very good stuff coming up. Um, for example, I mean, we're nothing if not eclectic. We, uh, we've got uh, Will Young next week talking about his new book, uh, How to Be a Gay Man. Uh, we've got I'm Alex, the YouTube sensation on. And I'm also doing a video uh, in support of boycott, divestment and sanctions. Eclectic. But also we've got a documentary coming out. Uh, but we haven't decided what the documentary is because we have to sift through all the ideas people have sent. If you sign up on Patreon, um, .com forward slash Evan Jones 84, we've got loads of, um, we've asked people what documentary should we make because we keep doing documentaries that people ask us to do. That's why we did the Hartlepool one. It's why we did this uh, video about companies profiting from COVID. Uh, so basically, if you sign up, you can help us decide what we do, who we talk about. We've got loads of great interview uh, ease coming up uh, on a whole range uh, of different issues that are always very eclectic. I mean, if I look at our latest interviews, for example, just bringing it up, what a professional I am uh, as I faff around with my computer. Yeah, so for example, our latest interviews, we have uh, Paris Lees uh, talking about the, the war on trans people, Ed Miliband, uh, we've had uh, Bashar Murad, who was a gay Palestinian activist. We've had Ian Lavery, the left-wing Labour MP, as well as Rebecca Long-Bailey, another left-wing Labour MP. Uh, we've had Sadiq Khan. Uh, we've had Robert Lindsay. We've had Jamie Carragher. Uh, we've had JJ Bolo talking about toxic masculinity. Uh, we've had Michael Rosen. We've had Abigail Thorne. We've had Claire Fox. We've had Naomi Klein. We've had Alexi Sale. We've had the leader of the Green Party, uh, Paul Krugman. We've got, we've had a lot of. It's very eclectic. So do check out those interviews, and also um, you can listen to them on the podcast or you can watch them. Um, and on the um, if you sign up on Patreon, you just send us ideas who to interview because a lot of those people are people we have have been suggested. The other thing before we go. This book's come out. I've done a chapter here. It's a really, really good book called We Can Do Better Than This. It's edited by Amelia Abraham, who's fantastic. And uh, it is a book about the future of LGBTQ plus rights. Um, and it includes people like me, unfortunately, but also Ollie Alexander, who you might have seen in It's a Sin. Uh, he's also the singer of Years and Years. Phil uh, Apoku Gimio, Dr. Phil. She's just an absolutely incredible trailblazer. Uh, Peppermint, Beth Ditto, so many. I wrote about LGBTQ plus mental health and what we can do about that. We've had others like Sean Fay, my friend, she's been on the show, uh, talking about um, uh, trans influencers. Juliet Jakes, another brilliant writer, talking about transphobia and the UK media. Uh, there's essays on dating, love and the family, health and social care, beyond the binary. Um, 
safety, visibility, these are all the kind of sections, community and organizing. Anyway, do get this book. We can do better than this. Not for me, but because of the other brilliant people on it. As I've said, we've got loads coming up. I've now got to take my cat Keir to the vet. He's been a bit peaky. So he's been fed antibiotics, which I'm incapable of delivering. So the vet's going to do it. Um, someone says, uh, my guests are eclectic, but only if left wing. Not true, amigo. Uh, the people I've interviewed include Peter Hitchens, Claire Fox, who I mentioned. She's not left wing. She's a Brexit, she's a Brexit party member of the House of Lords. Um, and also, uh, we've got some other right wing guests coming up, actually. So, no. That's enough for me. I'm going to go and put my cat in this carrier case. He doesn't like it. He gets very upset. Uh, lots of love, everyone. I will uh, see you very soon. We're live next Sunday at 12 o'clock. Uh, do support, as I've said, on Patreon if you can. Uh, we've got this documentary coming up and all these interviewees. Woohoo! Lots of love, everyone. Have a great Sunday or whatever day it is when you're watching or listening to this. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.